This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right, we are live. Coming to you from the Elite City Resort Hotel here in uh, Kalamata. Kalamata is uh, located in the south of Greece in a region called Messinia. Messinia. And the resort is literally right across the uh, street from the ocean, from the Mediterranean Sea, the Messinian Bay. I tell you, there's nothing I enjoy more than going down to the ocean at about 8 o'clock at night and just floating on my back. It's, uh, it's incredible. But here at the resort... The Elite City Resort, uh, my boys uh, just can't get enough of the swimming pool here. They have this amazing swimming pool. They're in there for like four or five hours a day. And uh, I pull those little prunes out and uh, <laughs> just to get them some food. And uh, then we uh, head off to the tennis court. My little guys are playing uh, tennis now and enjoying that immensely. So we are uh, relaxing as best we can. The weather's been great. And uh, what, what can I tell you? We got here on Tuesday, and uh, the other day we went to the historical center in Kalamata and visited the military museum. Just before that, we were at the May or the March 25th Square, uh, which is a square that commemorates the beginning of the Greek Revolution, where they declared their independence from Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, in 1821. And Greece had been under the uh, Turkish boot for 400 years, 400 years of slavery. So that was 1821. And since then, Greece has seen a great deal of uh, strife, wars and coups and civil wars. But now they're facing an entirely new situation. It's an economic crisis. And for the next hour, we're going to talk about where Greece is at, is at right now. My guest is 
probably the last investigative journalist in America, maybe anywhere, the last true investigative journalist. In fact, Robert F. Kennedy considers him to be his hero. Greg Palast is known in his native United States for his work at the Observer newspaper in the United Kingdom, where he broke the story of how Jeb Bush purged thousands of black Florida citizens from voter rolls before the 2000 election, thereby handing the White House to his brother George. His report from the theft of the 2000 and 2004 U.S. elections, the spike of the FBI investigations of the bin Ladens before September 11th, the secret State Department documents planning the seizure of Iraq's oil field have won him a record six Project Censored Awards for reporting the news American media doesn't want you to hear. He's also the author of Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, The Vulture's Picnic, and The Best Money Democracy Can Buy. Always a pleasure to have Greg Palace here on The Conspiracy Show. Greg, how are you? Glad to be with you again. Sounds nice. Why is Greece so near and dear to you? You spend a lot of time writing about the situation in Greece. Yes. Well, we're all Greece right now. So, um, yeah, um, in fact, my book, uh, Vulture's Picnic, which has a lot on the, uh, the economic occupation, reoccupation of Greece, um, my book, Vulture's Picnic, will be released in Greek um, in a few months. So uh, look for it there, because um, I won't be able to pick it out. <laughs> but I hope to, to visit you when the book comes out in, uh, in Greek. And if you're listening, I know a lot of Canadians are there. For those who read French, it'll be out in French soon as well. But well, we'd love to meet uh, you down here. So let's, okay. let's talk about what's going on in Greece right now. You refer to the dire economic situation here as a planned implosion. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's, well, to me, Greece is a crime scene. But uh, we'll go into the particulars of Greece. But um, you have to understand that, the, that what, we, what is seen as, a, as the Greek crisis or a disaster is uh, as if it were unplanned. And uh, uh, I'm not a conspiracy nut. I am a conspiracy expert. I've been, you know, I used to work for the U.S. Justice Department and attorneys generals on, on that type of thing. But it, it's not so much a conspiracy as as, uh, as a Greece is a victim of a of a theory created by the people who are taking advantage of it right now. There's uh, the one thing that just so people understand what's happening in Greece with the. Once Greece adopted the euro, there was a short period of kind of a bubble expansion like we had in the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere of real estate values going through the roof, etc. Then the economy collapsed. Right now, Greece, I was just looking up the numbers, Greece officially has 27% unemployment. That's the official number. Uh, compare that to the U.S. Great Depression. At its absolute worst, the U.S. Great Depression, we had 26% unemployment. So in other words, unemployment in Greece is actually higher right now than under the U.S. Great Depression. Wow. In addition, the drop in GDP, in, in the economic implosion, the, the, the decline in actual output of the nation is 
very close to the U.S. Great Depression as well. And um, the difference being, of course, is that Greece is still sinking. And no one really seems to be is prepared to do anything about it, except um, while Greece drowns the banks and uh, the European Union are pouring water on this drowning nation. And also that includes um, Greek uh, Cyprus, which is suffering the same fate, um, if not worse, at this moment. So now how does this happen? Was this some untold, unforeseen disaster? No, I wish uh, and it, that's, that's too uh, that's, uh, ridiculous. The, why, what does this have to do with the euro? Everything. The euro was not created. Was not created to create, the, as, as the fantasy line goes, the science fiction story of the birth of the euro, is that it was to unify Europe and to also create a strong currency which could compete with the U.S. dollar. Well, first of all, it obviously hasn't unified Europe. Um, in fact, uh, basically, Europe has made war on Greece. Um, you know, and instead of a German invasion, you just have a German purchase of the economy. Um, uh, you know, Germany's uh, banks are doing what uh, Hitler only dreamed of in terms of taking over control of Greece. Um, so it's not unifying Europe at all. It, it's allowing um, the the wealthier states and the wealthier portions of states to to seize and and wring the uh, wring the, the wealth out of the out of the weaker states. So it's not unifying, and uh, it's it's anything but unifying. It's tearing Europe apart into pieces. Um, How did Greece? Managed to get into the eurozone. In um, you were sold out. Uh, the, the, the Greece, like like any invasion, and all successful invasions are only successful because there's a fifth column on the inside. In Greece, it's the one percent. It's it's the very wealthy in Greece who um, now are doing very are getting wealthier. Let's not forget that that what's happened. You know, when the when the Greek economy started dying, um, their solution of the European Union was austerity, that is cutting government budgets, pensions, everything else, which is everything we've ever learned about economics since the Great Depression in the U.S. is the last thing you do in the Depression is reduce government spending. So they knew what, you know, they, they claimed, I just was looking it up, the European Union said, oh, yes, if we force Greece to cut employment, it will actually cause the economy to decline by 5.5%. Well, the economy quickly declined by 17.5%. Now, by the way, I don't believe that they didn't know that. that that's, you, if you have all these so-called expert economists, they're not stupid. They're not wrong. They knew exactly what would happen. Um, so why would they do this? Why? What is the advantage of, of smashing an economy on the rocks, of throwing one in four people out of work, of uh, people's wages being slashed and cut, people losing their pensions? There's even, for the first time in generations, there's starvation in Greece. Um, it is... Um, it is barely qualifying as a third world country. It is quickly moving to kind of 
Central African status, and there is nothing which is impeding its fall at the moment. So we know from basic, I mean, for example, the United States, uh, under George Bush even, when, when Bush, under Bush, when the economy imploded in 07, um, through the Federal Reserve, pumped $4 trillion into the economy, a, a process continued by, by Obama. And the U.S., I wouldn't call it a roaring recovery, but we have technically recovered from the recession in the United States, and that's because we did exactly the opposite of what the European Union ordered Greece to do and Spain, Portugal, Italy, um, etc. And uh, so why would they do that? The answer is that some people are really making out quite well in this so-called crisis. The Greeks, uh, the you know, basically Greek properties from beachfront and uh, to industries, ports, um, you know, just about everything that isn't nailed down is now for sale at a fire sale price. Uh, the elite of uh, Greece are are uh, sucking up the assets. They're not losing. They've already moved their money into U.S. dollars. They don't believe in the euro, and they're using dollars to buy up these assets. Um, the um, you know, obviously, the Germans are moving in quite big with their cash, and um, you know, maybe you'll be lucky, and the Chinese will throw in a few bucks. But basically, uh, Greece's all of Greece's assets are going down the drain and being sold out. So once again, you talked about 400 years of occupation by the Ottoman Empire. Well, now you'll be under the occupation of the. I'm laughing because it's just so tragic. It's almost it's a joke. Uh, you'll be under the occupation of the uh, Euro Empire. Um, you know what's remarkable? And, yeah. Despite all of this horrible news on the economic front, you don't hear people complaining down here. They just get on with their lives. They've seen worse. Well, the question is, is that good? I think one of the things that's been very disappointing to me in both uh, Cyprus, uh, um, Greek Cyprus and Greece is almost while there were some riots early on that people were horrified when people were killed and when the, a bank was burnt down um, at because uh, there's no value in in Greeks killing Greeks but the the kind of almost strange passivity here is uh, astonishing part of it is that you don't have an alternative party in Greece which is basically all parties um, have committed themselves to um, the European, to the Euro Titanic. And are hey, willing I've got to take it down with Greg. Yeah. Let me just jump in. We'll, uh, we'll pick up on the other side. Investigative journalist, rogue investigative journalist, New York Times bestselling author Greg Palace here on the Conspiracy Show talking the planned implosion of Greece. Stay with us. Welcome back. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece, a country in deep, deep crisis, a financial uh, chasm uh, that they've fallen into, and perhaps even in free fall. Author, investigative reporter, Greg Pallast is with us. Uh, Greg, I was mentioning before the break that they don't complain here in Greece. That I, I don't mean to suggest that they're not angry. I mean, the Greeks virtually invented politics. I mean, they talk about it constantly, uh, but they... What I mean to say is they don't complain in the sense that, oh, woe is me. And one of the things that, that angers me about the portrayal of Greece in the media is that they are 
lazy and shipless and uh, you know th- th- this image we have of Greece is absorbed yeah. by the Greek. You did a wonderful job in one of your uh, recent articles comparing the Greek worker to his European counterparts in places like Germany yeah. or even the American worker. Could you sort of recap what you were saying about it, the it, Greek worker? Yeah, well, first of all, the myth is is that the Greek workers did it to the... What happens, the reason Greece is in, pro, is in trouble because Greeks are just lazy, uh, olive pits, Bidding, uzo swilling characters who um, base, uh, who you know retire when they're teenagers and uh, only work seven hours a week or something. You know, this is the this is the myth that's been put out by uh, the New York Times, for example. You'll see this uh, Washington Post, uh, the uh, you know the, the big media, and um, and of course the Germans are using this line. But just just let me get the facts clear. Those Greeks who do have jobs work an average of 619 hours a year more than their Germ- than German workers. Let me repeat that. They work the average Greek worker puts in an extra 600 hours a year. Okay, so um, basically work the average Greek worker puts in about an extra six, seven weeks of work while the Germans are um, off on cruises ex- uh, expecting Greeks to be serving them pina coladas. That's what's going on. So you get this idea, and you have some of your own Greek politicians who are part of the, who created this crisis, and they are blaming Greeks. The idea is always to blame, and this is true, you blame the Cypriots, you blame every nation in crisis, um, when uh, California's in, when we have in in, in um, North America, when um, we had the foreclosure market, oh, it's people borrowing money uh, for homes that they can't afford, which is also baloney. So it's always the economic oligarchs are always saying it's their victims who are to blame. And you had a minister, uh, Theodorus um, uh, Pangalos, who uh, was deputy prime minister. One of the key people who brought help bring uh, Greece to its knees, and I have an article, my big fat Greek minister, which I call I refer to him as the fat bastard, and I rarely speak of people's weight, but you have to see this guy. He looks like like he's pregnant with triplets, and I I bring that out only because for the as I've said, reading stories of starvation among school children in Greece, while this guy is blaming them blaming these hungry victims for what he did. Greece is a crime scene. And by the way, when I talk about the euro, the, understand what the euro has done. The euro, um, it was created, was invented by a guy named Robert Mundell. And I've spoken to Mundell at length. He's a professor. He's, by the way, he's not European. He's an American, uh, born in Canada, uh, teaches at Columbia ultra-right wing. His most famous creation before the euro was something called supply-side economics, or Reaganomics, Thatchernomics, or what, um, or what uh, George Bush Sr. called voodoo economics. So the creator of the complete nonsense voodoo economics, and by the way, the, just in case people actually think that Reagan actually was an economic genius, Using his voodoo economics, we ended up with the highest unemployment rate um, in American history since the Great Depression. 
um, for no reason. It's not like we had the situation like with the implosion of the housing market lately. I mean, was, we had close 10% unemployment under Ronald Reagan. Um, and uh, that's the guy who invented the euro and created Reaganomics. And what he told me was pretty brutal. You know, uh, I, when I say that the euro destroyed was meant to destroy the Greek economy, that was indeed the plan. According to Mundell, when you create the euro, by definition, when, as soon as you take away a nation's currency, uh, that means that they cannot, uh, there's no monetary policy for that nation, there's no fiscal policy for that nation. In case you're wondering what monetary policy is, this is very simple. By the way, if, when I'm t- telling you this, keep in mind that I'm, I'm an economist by training, and the reason I spoke to Mundell is I was a student of of uh, Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago, which is where I got my degree in economics. And That's right. uh, you may be surprised to hear that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so I actually Nothing met all these right. right-wing freaks, right? And so the uh, um, it, so Mundell told me, he says, okay, you lose ec- monetary policy, you lose economic policy, uh, fiscal policy, which is your ability to set interest rates, um, and to uh, and you use budget, you lose budgetary control in Europe because you've got a rule that says you can't have more than a three percent deficit, uh, which is ridiculous. It's insane. No nation runs a three just a three percent deficit in recession. Uh, you, you have to run. And the United States ran a nine percent to eleven percent deficit in the last couple of years to pull ourselves out of recession. And Greeks are being told you may not do that. You may not do what has been what has been successful in the United States, successful in Brazil, successful in China, to, to reverse the recession. Um, you but can't you do that. You control of your currency. You don't have a country, essentially. You don't have your own thing, country. Greg, you're the economy. And he you said, me, and he even, by the way, just so you know, in case you're wondering, is are, they are they anti-democratic? Yeah. Mundell said the point of the euro is to have something that's more powerful than parliaments or congresses. And In other words, you don't... Elections mean nothing. Democracy, the euro is the death, is by definition the death of democracy because your parliament, the Greek parliament, is, has to sit there helpless because it has no fiscal, monetary, or budgetary policies. So what happens is, is, so why would someone create this? He said very specifically, this will destroy labor unions. This will be the end of government ownership of, of, uh, of industry. So, so what you have, that's massive privatizations, the end of, uh, of labor union wages and powers, the destruction of public pension funds. Now you'd say, is this guy some type of monster? No, he's a, he is a monetarist. He is a, uh, he's someone who truly believes in the complete uh, liberation of the market. He's a follower of another unit of uh, Schumpeter, who believes in the concept of what's called creative destruction, that if you just rip apart an economy completely, just rip it apart, and you'll go through this period of tremendous pain, at the other end of of all this pain and unemployment, this complete disaster and sell-off of your properties and industries in Greece, at the end of it, you'll end up with this free market paradise, because now you'll be freed of of tyrannical labor unions and government control of industry, and your regulations will be gone because uh, you'll, you know, that's going to go next. So then you will have this free market utopia, and Greece will now be, you know, this new uh, raging uh, um, uh, economy. And if you can just 
hold your breath underwater for a couple more years. You're going to come out of this as the strongest, fastest-growing economy in Europe. And that's a theory of creative destruction that is behind, that is the, the theoretical basis of the euro. Um, unfortunately, in my experience as an economist, I've seen a lot with these theories. I've seen a lot of destruction. I'm still waiting for the creation. Now, Greg, on the face of it, Greece entering the euro doesn't make any sense on another level to me, and that is how can you have a, a juggernaut economy like Germany, and you know their currency, the Deutsche Mark, uh, and, and the drachma, which is sort of the loan currency on the totem pole. How can you have Greece and Germany under the same currency umbrella? Germany has industry. Greece has nothing but sand and sun. Right. Well, in fact, um, interestingly, Mundell, who created the euro, the theoretical basis of the euro, and invented it, he originally called it the Europa, won the Nobel Prize for a theory called optimal currency areas. And as I noted to him, um, the euro is not an optimal currency area. In fact, it's a dismal currency area. You, in fact, you said it exactly. Optimal currency areas should have the same exact industrial profile and economic profile. Greece is based on tourism and agriculture and shipping. Germany is based on heavy industry. Now, uh, that means you have completely different economies which should therefore have completely different currencies. In fact, it is an absolute um, rule of Mundell's theories that, that Greece and Germany should be in two different currencies. So I said, how, would you, how come they're in one currency? He said, because this is not about optimal currency. This is about ridding um, Europe of the, ter- of the terrible and tyrannical welfare state. He owns a a uh, villa in Tuscany, and he was complaining to me that he wasn't allowed to put a toilet in where he wanted because of all the crazy rules, in his opinion, that require him to preserve this ancient uh, villa. And he doesn't want, you know, he says, all that should be destroyed. Forget the ancient villas. Forget the Parthenon. So sell it off. I bet you, if you, you know, if you, if you took it apart piece by piece and sold each piece of the Parthenon, probably make a lot of money. And then you could pay off some of the, your debts to Germany. Um, I'm joking about that one, but you know. But basically, I'm not kidding. This is behind the theory. Now, Mundell's not powerful enough to have imposed this monstrosity currency on Greece. It was done by um, a small group of Greeks and other Europeans and, and uh, American uh, banking interests who saw a good way to uh, pick apart. Uh, there's a lot of nice stuff in Greece uh, worth buying up cheap. And they uh, they're getting it. So that that in fact I call Greece a crime scene. And I asked Pangalos, I said, so why sh- if you know that when the economy of um, Iceland collapsed, the uh, prime minister of the time has now been uh, put in prison because uh, has been arrested and is facing criminal charges because. He knew and covered up the fact that the banks were going down and forced the public to take on those debts and destroyed the economy. Now, Pangalos, as deputy prime minister, and I'm not just blaming him there, it's just that I was able to grab him at a, when I was, I happened to cross paths with him in Kazakhstan of all places. Uh, so at I was able to confront him. Huh? What? <laughs> yeah. At the buffet table. 
Yeah, at the buffet table, of course. And um, the uh, so I was able to con- you know confront him. But you have a, several Greek uh, ministers, presidents, prime ministers, finance ministers of both your major parties, both parties, um, and that includes you know Papa Andreou and Samaras, the whole the whole gang. They secretly agreed to work with uh, to work secret deals with Goldman Sachs and secondarily J.P. Morgan in in, in uh, Spain, Italy. It was mostly J.P. Morgan. In Greece, it was mostly Goldman Sachs to come up with a way to hide the government deficits. Why would you hide a government deficit? Why? What's the big secret? The answer is you're not allowed to join or stay in the euro if your deficit is more than 3% of the gross domestic product, it, it, which is a very – basically, you can't have run deficits, which is silly. You know, governments are um, – you know, governments must run deficits. They're supposed to, if, when the economy goes down, there's no other way to do it, uh, and it's the only way to survive. It's basic, you know, the basic findings of Keynes. And in fact, that goes back to Marx and Adam Smith as well. It's not that Keynes invented it. Marx talked about in crisis capitalism, demand drops and and capitalism tumbles into crisis. So Keynes said, so what we do is we use the government to build up. Demand. Well, um, the uh, you could kind of say that your government is very Marxist because it believes that, um, except that they believe that capitalism ought to be in crisis. <laughs> crisis has its uses. Like I say, you buy up the country cheap. Oh. But what happens? There's a secret. Let me, agreement sorry, Greg. Let me jump in here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got to take another time out. We'll come back. Greg Palace talking about the planned implosion of Greece right here on the Conspiracy Show, live from Kalamata and the Elite City Resort. And we are back, coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, in the Messinia, southern part of Greece. Looking out the window here, I'm uh, situated in the conference room at the Aqua Club, looking out over the Messinian Bay. The sun is coming up here. It's just past 7.30. And uh, the, uh, the sun is just sparkling like diamonds. It's a beautiful, breathtaking country. Uh, but obviously in deep crisis, and uh, that's why we have Greg Palast here to talk about it. He's the author of A Billionaire's and Ballot Bandits, Vulture's Picnic, and the New York Times bestsellers Armed Madhouse, and The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. You can see him frequently on uh, BBC television, occasionally on CBC television in uh, Canada, and uh, read him in the Guardian newspaper, but you won't read him in the New York Times or the Washington Post. He's practically in exile in his own country. Uh, Greg, I wanted to ask you about the debt that, that uh, Greece is supposed to pay back. Who do they owe that money? Well, originally, this is one of the, the this is what I was talking about, Greece is a crime scene. I, I described this in Vulture's Picnic. Um, and a lot, and by the way, I don't want to take credit for this discovery. Uh, I just put together a lot of the material. Um, Der Spiegel and, and uh you know, my associate, Ms. Badpenny, who speaks four languages, is able to put material together from all the various European papers. Um, but what we're able to find out is that Goldman Sachs had a secret deal for several years with both parties of the Greek government to hide the, the deficit. And the way that they did it was to play games with currency swaps, uh, you know, using the Japanese yen in particular, 
where it looked as if the Greek government was making billions of dollars in trades on currencies, when in fact the Greek government was not making any money at all. It was all phony paper trades. It was a massive, massive multi-billion dollar fraud. And in fact, um, so Goldman Sachs charged $400 million for running this scam. I mean, that's almost a half a billion dollars. In addition, because it was a fraud, as soon as as soon as the true deficit was uncovered, of course, Greek bondholders totally flipped out, uh, finding out that Greece didn't have the money to pay them back. This has all been a fraud committed by Goldman Sachs. And as I said, J.P. Morgan did the same for um, Italy and Spain. Um, so when the truth came out, or at least some of the truth is worse than, than whatever came out, the bondholders that were left holding the, the, the bag of feces, um, demanded usurious interest rates. So suddenly, while Germany is borrowing money at 3%, Greece is borrowing in euros, remember it has to use the same currency, has to borrow at 16 17%. Absolutely insane math. No one, no nation, no person, no company can possibly survive by borrowing at that type of interest spread. That's just loan sharking stuff. Um, you're dead once you do that. Um, and uh, so instead of Greece saying, well, we're just not going to pay, they borrow and continue. The Greek government went along with borrowing at these massive rates from, you know, that's the other thing that, you know, Goldman Sachs destroys the economy through this fraud. You know, participated, the government participated in it. Uh, but Goldman Sachs is making money on that. And then make, Goldman Sachs makes money on on uh, lending the money when the Greece is drowning at this massive interest rate. J.P. Morgan, too. Now, did they take any losses? No. When the bottom finally fell out of the Greek debt, the European Central Bank bought out all the, just about every bank's um, um, position. So none of these banks took a hit because they simply um, uh, turned the, uh, uh, when the European uh, Central Bank decided to buy out, uh, you know, so-called bailout Greece, they weren't bailing out Greece. Greeks got not a dime, not one euro, not one shekel out of the, um, the European Central Bank. It all went to the bankers to whom Greece owed money. The idea that, that Greece is bailed out is nonsense. And obviously, if if you're in Greece, you know that because everything's being sold off, wages are dropping, unemployment, businesses are closing. So where's the bailout? Because all the money went to these bankers. So they the bankers crashed the economy and then made a lot of money off it. Now, not now, European Central Bank now controls almost all owns all the debt and other central uh, um, and other central banks within the European Union. And the U.S. Treasury owns a lot of uh, debt from the European Union and central banks in Greece, etc. But about 3% of the debt was held by a group of characters in Vulture's Picnic that gave the book its title, The Financial Vultures. In particular, a guy named Paul Singer of New York, who has a company called Elliott Management. He went to the Greek government and said, I, I'm not, no, you can't pay me off. No, he bought the bonds at about 30% of their face value. He would not accept 100%. He demanded 200%. So roughly, 
This guy demanded 10 times what he paid for the bonds, a thousand percent profit. And the Greek government gave him every penny he demanded because he said, if you don't give me every penny I demand, I'm going to crash not only the rest of the Greek economy, but I'm going to seize, move and try to seize all the assets in all the other countries who received any money from Greece. I'll try to seize that money. It's a trick that the vultures use. So they basically take gov- governments that are deeply in debt and they basically hold them out for ransom. It's a trap. Now, we've got to take a time out. Yeah, okay. We'll come back with Greg Palast as we talk about the economic crisis in Greece. Here on the conspiracy show, we don't go away. Rogue investigative journalist Greg Palast is with us. He takes a lot of people off. He's the author of Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, Vulture's Picnic, and the New York Times bestsellers, Armed Madhouse, and The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. We're talking about the economic crisis in Greece. Uh, Greg, should Greece simply uh, default on these loans, pull out of the euro, and go back to the drachma, or is it late to do that even? Well, it's late because you've already given away so much of your country to the Germans. It's late because so many Greeks have already lost their jobs, the industry's gone down the tubes. The action should have been taken before. But the drachma was good enough for Plato. And I think it'll be good enough for you. Uh, one thing that the euro—I mean, the truth is—is is that the uh, the euro is is eating is a disease, and to stay in the euro leper colony is the what nations are doing to stay within the leper colony is insane. All you do is get leprosy. Uh, you've got to get out. You've got to escape. Now, uh, to give you the example of a successful escape. You have to look at Argentina. Now, Argentina right now is fighting that same vulture, Paul Singer. Uh, But Argentina told the banks to stick it. They told the IMF to go to hell. And while the Argentines did not have the U.S. dollar, the Argentine peso was locked one-to-one to the U.S. dollar. So it was almost part of the same currency zone as the U.S. So just like there was tremendous fear of leaving the uh, U.S. currency because it was locked one-to-one, uh, just like uh, Greeks have a fear of leaving, uh, of leaving the euro because they're told the sky will fall. Well, I hate to say it, the sky has fallen in Greece. It com- it's completely fallen, and it's still falling. Uh, the Argentines said, go to hell, told the banks to stick it, the IMF to stick it, unhooked from the U.S. currency, and became the booming engine of South America. Um, uh, and then Brazil followed their example and became, you know, uh, you know, the, the great shining leader. And if it wasn't for the great irony, if it wasn't for the booming Argentine economy and the booming Brazilian economy, um, and no matter what they say about the booming Venezuelan economy, same thing, unhooking, um, the um, uh, the world would have been much worse off. Thank God these economies were still roaring away when the rest of the world was on its knees. But Argentina went through the same thing and still fighting these guys in U.S. courts about with the bondholders. Uh, you know, Paul Singer wants, uh, you, know, uh, you know, 50 times what he paid for Argentine bonds. And they're saying, screw you. We're not paying. Too bad. 
and, uh, you know, when the U.S. government uh, stomps its feet and they say, well, you know, tell you what, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, we can retaliate, too. Same with Ecuador. Ecuador, I spoke to the president of, uh, you know, for BBC television, I spoke with the president of Ecuador, and he said, I'm not going to pay these vultures. These are you serious bonds. The banks ripped us off through fraud. I, you know, the one good thing uh, for the people of Ecuador is that the president is also an economist. He also, actually, we were both economists in Illinois. Um, he spent a lot of his life in America as an economist, came down, became president of uh, Ecuador, and said, I know the system, I'm an economist, and I know what you guys are doing to us, and we're not buying it anymore. And uh, you know what? Instead of the, the sky didn't fall, in fact, the Ecuadorian economy is booming, Argentina is booming, Brazil is booming, and all the other nations which have followed this you know, system of telling the, uh, the, the banks go to hell are doing very, very well. And the other great irony is that honest banks can't wait to lend them more money. They are <laughs> it's, it's the great irony of it all is, you know, you're told, oh, you'll never be able to borrow a dime again. What can Greek, Greece borrow now? Greece can't borrow a dime for its own economy. You're only borrowing money to pay off other banks. So, yes, yeah, should Greece leave the leper colony? Um, I would say so. I'd say run for the exits. Yes. And they say, oh, well, that will cause a crisis. You're in crisis in Greece. You're in, it's, a, it's a disaster. It's like saying, well, if we're in, we're in the Titanic, should we just, you know, uh, what should, well, I suggest you get into the lifeboat is the answer. Get out of there. I mean, it's, it's, it's staring you in the face. And yet you've What's got that politicians for Germany who aren't. If Greece mm-hmm. were to exit, because it seems to me that, that Germany is benefiting. Uh, here we have... A combination Deutschmark drachma. If it weren't for the drachma, Germany wouldn't be able to export goods anywhere because no one would be able to afford them. That's right. See, what Germany did is pulled off a terrific trick, a terrible con job. The Deutschmark was overvalued. So what you do is is that you you overvalue the southern European currencies, so that you, in other words, normally. A currency devalues. You can devalue your currency if you're in crisis to um, increase your exports and reduce your imports to build up your own treasury. That's a normal thing that that every country in crisis can and should do. The thing is, you can't devalue the euro. You're stuck with the German currency. I mean, by the way, that's the other thing. It's a joke to call the euro to even use the name here. It's the Deutschmark except that you're stuck with it. So you're under the, the Greek people, uh, the Italians, the Portuguese, the, the Spanish, the Cypriots, the Greek Cypriots, the Turkish Cypriots are doing quite well, um, are under the a German currency occupation. And it's absolutely, utterly devastating, and yet you're being told something terrible will happen if you leave it. Well, how much more terrible can it get? What does it take? Like I say, the numbers show, the official numbers put Greece as worse off than the United States under the Great Depression. How much worse can it get? These are the people that that said when the so-called crisis started in 2009, when it was revealed 
that the Greek government had hit its deficits, and again, that was in conspiracy with Goldman Sachs, that when it began in '09, the European Union said the economy will have to, or is going to fall by 5%. It's fallen by nearly 18%. These guys are lying. When they say that, oh, it'll be even worse if you leave the euro, impossible. There is nothing worse. There is basic, you're at the point where there's really no um, equal in history. You're now getting to the point where the Greek economy is actually falling faster than any economy in world history that I know of. Um, the only thing that, that equals it really um, is, uh, frankly, is Germany itself at the very end of World War II uh, when uh, the nation was smashed for about one year. And then it was built up quickly under the U.S. Marshall Plan. But well, speaking um, of World War II, yeah. yeah, you know the Italians at the behest of Hitler invaded Greece in, I believe it was October of 1940, and Mussolini sent a, a demand to the a Greek prime minister that they surrender. And yes. the Texas sent a terse one-word response back to the Italians, which was "Ohi, no." And of course, Ohi Day is celebrated every year uh, in Greek communities throughout the world. It sounds to me like Greece needs another Ohi Day. Yeah, and um, it won't be easy because I, I do remember also during World War II that um, that uh, Britain bombed Athens when the communist um, partisans um, started pushing out the uh, the Axis powers out of Athens. And so the idea was to, they, instead of bombing the Nazis, they bombed the, the, the partisans fighting the Nazis. Um, and so they're not going to let you go so easily, but, uh, as the Argentines found out. But uh, you might want to just connect your, your currency then to Argentina or Brazil and forget connecting to, um, to Germany. A very poor idea. And so, yeah, it, uh, it, you need a no day. Uh, the banks, you're just going to have to. The, it, the process is simple. You create a drachma, which is one for one for the euro, and you, and then all debts can, are payable in the drachma, which are printed by your government, and you pay off all the debts in drachma and say, there you are, <laughs> to the bankers, and goodbye. And if you want to sue us or do whatever you want to do, but too bad. And this is what. Argentina did with great, great success. You know, I mean, yeah, they'll scream at you and there'll be uh, all kinds of uh, dislocations, but also Argentina then had to take back a lot of the stolen property, like its oil company was privatized. They didn't, they didn't take it back directly. What they did was they just taxed the Spaniards who had uh, seized the company for peanuts, and they just said, okay, you made a lot of money, we're just going to tax it back. Um, there's many ways to take these properties back that have been stolen. And then you have your own currency to refinance your factories and your businesses so they can reopen. Um, and that's how it's going to have to be. That's the only way it can work. Um, and will there be banks screaming and trying to seize uh, Greek assets around the world? Yes. But what are they doing now? They're trying to seize Greek assets all over the world. It's, it's, there's no, literally, there's no way to make things worse than they are now. It, Greece is absolutely at the very bottom and still sinking. It is, 
possible for a switchback to the drachma to make it worse. Well, the, be better. the unfortunate aspect of this, as there are many obviously, but one of them is the, the rise of the fascist right here in Greece, and that's the yeah. Golden Dawn Party that has won seats in Parliament, which is, you know, it flies in the face of Greek history. They have stood up against fascism uh, time and time again, and now here we have this insidious cancer uh, making its way into onto the political uh, scene here. Yeah, well, that's the danger, that? because there's no progressive, strong progressive alternative. There was a, a party, I mean, you did have your third party, I guess it's Syriza, which, which, had, which did initially take a strong position. As soon as it gets in government, it became another sellout organization, which joined the club. And so what happens is when there's a vacuum, there's a vacuum in which there is no party which is taking a strong pro-Greek position. So you end up with, with the kind of brown shirt fascist reaction, which is, let's blame immigrants. Suddenly it's Albanian immigrants or something. You know, it's, like, it's, it's almost a bad joke. It's almost like the, you know, the, the, the uh, Mel Brooks film, The Producers. You know? It's like uh, it, it is to suddenly, like as if all the problems of Greece, which is a which is a disaster created by uh, by the imposition of the Deutschmark euro, by banking conspiracies, um, by massive fraud, by uh, leaders and the and the wealthy in Greece, and suddenly you're going to blame a bunch of people who uh, float over by boat. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, sick. It's sad. It's silly, but it's also extremely extremely dangerous because we have seen people get who are desperate and don't know what to do and are hungry and unemployed who will given no alternative progressive alternative will turn to fascism and uh, you know blame the immigrants you know blame the jews blame uh, whoever you know whoever they exactly. can latch on to except the people that are really robbing them blind well, despite all this horrible news greg i'm still betting on the greek I'm bidding on Greece. My, my lovely bride, the mighty Aphrodite, is trying to start an olive oil business here. Uh, she's trying to finish her father's house and, and, and build uh, a life for us so we can spend part of our, our uh, year here. Uh, let's just, uh, you know, keep our fingers crossed and hope for another OC day and the people will rise up. Greg, thanks for your uh, time. Always yeah. appreciate it. Anytime. And gregpalace.com for continuing reports on Greece. And I'll see you in... Athens in a couple months. Okay. Looking forward to it, Greg. Greg Palace. All right. The website is richardsarek.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Sarek. And as always, follow the truth wherever it leads. Make that live from Kalamata in Messenia, the southern part of uh, this wonderful country, Greece, coming to you live from the Elite City Resort. Beautiful hotel that has uh, hotel rooms, business facilities, of villas, an incredible pool, dining facilities, tennis courts, which uh, North and Zach, my twin boys, are uh, taking full advantage of. But the pool, can't get out of the pool. Um, myself, I love the pool, but uh, nothing better for me than to uh, go down to the ocean in Messinian Bay and just float on my back for like two hours, just uh, loving every minute of it down here. And my thanks to uh, the great folks here at the Elite City Resort for allowing me to broadcast the program. You know, Greece, of course, is the home of the olive. It is the home of Socrates and Plato. It is the home of 
democracy and politics and philosophy, Herodotus, uh, on and on it goes. Little did I know, though, that Greece is also the home of the vampire. That's right. Many of the legends of the vampire got their start right here in Greece. And when I found this out, I had to give my good friend a call. Joins us the second Sunday of every month. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is an American researcher who writes on topics related to spirituality, the occult, and the paranormal. She's written 45 books, including 10 encyclopedias. Always a pleasure to welcome her, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. I got a, a small bone to pick with you. I, my luggage was over at the airport, and it's it's partially your fault. You know why? I packed I packed your hefty tome, the Encyclopedia of Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Monsters, and hauled it all the way uh, down here to Kalamata because I knew we were going to talk about vampires. And, and uh, I mean, this is the definitive uh, work on vampires. Yes, this book probably did tip you over the scales. It's a good two or three pounds. I, I, real, I didn't realize. I, I came down here to Greece with, for a little R&R with my, my two little guys, not realizing I have stepped into sort of Vampire Central. One of the, oh, it was the manager here at the uh, Elite City Resort where I'm staying in Kalamata. Uh, asked, so what are you doing on the show tonight? And I said, well, I mentioned some other things. I said, well, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is coming on, and we're going to talk about vampires. And she, in a in this hushed tone, you know, under her breath, she said, oh, vricolakas, vricolakas. And I said, well, what is that? And, and she said, vampires, vampires. That's what we call them here. And I didn't realize, uh, and then, I, of course, then I went into your book, your encyclopedia, and I, I didn't realize, though, that, that Greece is like Vampire Central. There's so much uh, lore and legend and actual first-hand accounts of encounters with vampires in Greece. Had I known, I may not have come. <laughs> you are indeed right in the capital of vampires. What we know about vampires, most of our popular culture lore came out of Serbia, but a lot of that uh, was integrated with lore from Greece. And Greece actually has um, many of the more interesting vampire cases, uh, really bloody cases and weird vampires, a, a lot of varied beliefs about vampires, very specific. And the Greek vampire is um, and the Eastern European vampire, although they, they share characteristics. But um, the Greek vampire is, is, uh, was believed to be a demon who possessed a corpse. Uh, whereas in the European tradition, it's it could be a demon possessing a corpse, but it it was you know a person, the lost soul of a person who didn't make it into the afterlife for a variety of reasons. They were excommunicated, drowned, you know, were murdered, committed suicide, were cursed, those sorts of things, and uh, those sorts of beliefs are also prevalent in the Greek lore as well. But. Um, uh, there are many, many detailed accounts of Greek vampires just wreaking havoc on the landscape, and some of them were very difficult to deal with and get rid of. Well, this is the thing that I'm that I'm learning now uh, in, in talking to some of the uh, the locals and the people here at the hotel. Is uh, this isn't just about you know legends and and stories? There are many recorded incidents 
and 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 you detail them in, in your in your in your book. Uh, for example, let's get into this case recorded by this French botanist Joseph Piton de Tournefort, uh, I believe, on the island of Mykonos, not too far from here. That's right, and that's one of the best uh, Greek cases. And his his writing was. Uh, so vivid, and uh, he actually had kind of a low opinion of what he uh, believed were superstitious um, locals, you know, who believed in this sort of thing. It was just beyond him. But he actually witnessed uh, an attempt to to put this vampire corpse to rest, and um, they didn't have very 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 much success with it. But um, this concerned a, a man who. Uh, was very ill-mannered, and nobody liked him very well. He was always getting in uh, difficulties with people and had a bad temper, and he was murdered. Well, in vampire lore, that's uh, step number one toward becoming a vampire. If you're murdered or commit suicide, you might come back as a vampire. Uh, So it's no surprise then when he did turn into a vampire. He was buried... And uh, people talked about him that, um, you know, he was a bad-tempered man, he was murdered, you know, they were worried he was going to come back as a vampire. And sure enough, not long after his burial, he was seen around town. Now, when vampires were seen around town, and, and this was the way they were described back then, we don't really know if they looked like flesh-and-blood people walking around, if they looked like apparitions. But whatever form they were in, they were readily recognizable, and they did things to people. And uh, they often acted like poltergeists, and they would uh, create chaos and upset uh, things and scatter things about. Um, yeah, they, they put out their lamps or uh, – yeah, they were more sort of mischievous tricksters rather than, you know, these uh, voracious – uh, you know, bloodthirsty creatures. Well, some, yes, yeah, some of them could be that way. And they could attack people at night and, like, tear their bedclothes off. They would often uh, create wasting away illnesses and people were, people would say they were attacked with a vampire and they started to feel poorly. Um, and so there were various remedies for these. And a mass was said uh, in the hopes of, of, you know, driving him back into his grave. Uh, that didn't work, and uh, so the next step was to exhume the body and, and burn it. But according to local custom, if this was a vampire they were dealing with, and they were convinced they were, they had to take his heart out separately and burn that first before they could burn the body. So this turned into a big comedy where they, they brought in the town butcher, and for a butcher, he didn't really seem to know where the human heart was because he opened up the abdomen and started clawing around in the entrails. And, uh, of course, this decomposing corpse just set up a huge, great stench. And people were, you know, crying and shrieking. And finally he gets the heart out, and uh, they they burned it. The smell was so bad that they had to burn frankincense, which is a very powerful incense. Yes. And uh, Turnifort said that, uh, he believed that the combination of this decomposing corpse stench and the incense caused, and plus the hysteria that was being whipped up, caused people to start to hallucinate. And they were shrieking that this big black cloud was coming up from the corpse and that this was the vampire. And uh, they were screaming and carrying on. It, it would have done Hollywood well, you know, to film this. 
Now, which and uh, the butcher was was crying out that the corpse's blood was still warm, and this was in fact another sign that it was a vampire. And uh, so, in in his account of this, Turnafort said that uh, well, of course, the blood might still be warm in a decomposing body because a lot of gases would be uh, emitted. But that didn't stop the the locals from believing that they had a real vampire corpse on their hands. So they burned the heart. They took it to the shore and burned it, you know, got it as far away from the village as possible. But this didn't stop the vampire. He still came back and attacked people, and now he was meaner and madder than ever. He beat them up. He broke down uh, doors. Um, he tore up clothing. He drank wine. Uh, and he created a whole lot of fear because now it seemed to be totally out of control and so out of control that people just deserted the town and they started living in tents outside the town because um, they felt that they were a little more protected uh, outside of there. And uh, So uh, finally, the, they, they did burn the body and uh, that seemed to help and Turner Fort's conclusion was that the Greeks were full of ignorance and superstition. Uh, but these sorts of cases were repeated over and over again in Greece, in, in uh, Turkey, in Asia Minor, in Serbia. Similar things, similar remedies were uh, undertaken in an effort to present, prevent rampaging dead people from terrorizing the living. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, with us and uh, the author of, uh, oh, dozens and dozens of, uh, of uh, works, works on the paranormal and supernatural, including uh, one that I've uh, brought with me. That's the Encyclopedia of Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Monsters. Uh, and here in Greece, uh, legends of vampires are, uh, are plentiful. Uh, or as they refer to them here, vrikolakas. Uh, and, and the thing is, Rosemary, even to this day, I, I'm told, uh, now people might be hesitant to admit it, but I mean, they, they may have relatives. Uh, for example, right here uh, in the Elite uh, Hotel in the Messinian Bay, we are uh, in the shadows of the Tahito Mountains, which are a beautiful mountain range, part of the Peloponnesian Mountains. And they have some, there are some very remote horios or villages up there. And I've driven up there. It's beautiful. Uh, but I'm told, you know, people have relatives that still to this day believe uh, in the vrikolakas. Hard to imagine in 2013, but who knows? We find this uh, really all over the place uh, in in those countries and in, and in Europe. A few years ago, I went to Romania, and uh, I, I was there on a Dracula trip and making a pilgrimage to various sites that were connected with Vlad Tepish and the legends of Dracula and that sort of thing. And we, we passed through a lot of remote countryside where we would come upon very small villages and see family grave plots that would be um, marked off with wooden stakes or metal stakes. And these were not decorations. Uh, they were not intended to keep the living out. They were intended to keep the dead in um, so that people would not be able to leave their graves and come back to the living. So, uh, yes, these beliefs are still prevalent today. All right, Rosemary, listen, we'll take a time out when we come back. We'll talk about the vampires of Santorini, numerous cases of vampire attacks on the volcanic island in the Aegean Sea, about 120 miles off the coast of Greece, renowned in its past for 
uh, Vampire Activity. Rosemary Ellen Guiley talking vampires. Richard Serrett coming to you live from Kalamata, Greece, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Her website is www.visionaryliving.com. Rosemary joins us the second Sunday of every month, and we're talking about vampires, or as they're known locally, vricolakas. Now, we, uh, we, we talked about this incident of a vampire in the 18th century uh, in, on the island of Mykonos, now we move to another island, and uh, that would be Santorini, a beautiful volcanic island in the Aegean Sea. Uh, and again, again, this is Vampire Central. Uh, I mean, if, if Greece is Vampire Central, then Santorini, the island of Santorini in Greece, is really uh, Vampire Central Greece. It's right at the epicenter. I've been to Santorini. I thought it was an absolutely spectacular island. And it's hard to imagine that it was literally the vampire dumping grounds in the past. And uh, this is something that human beings have done. We've always shipped our undesirables off to some distant location, preferably an island. In folklore around the world, evil spirits, uh, the restless dead, cannot cross water. So to get something like a vampire off the mainland or at least off your island onto another island meant that it could never come back and pester you. So Santorini got to be um, the, the destination place for uh, corpses believed to be vampires, the unwanted dead, uh, the ashes of the uh, uh, alleged vampire corpses, and they were all sent off to Santorini. Well, there were some very unusual cases there, and um, they intrigued uh, an Englishman by the name of Montague Summers, who was uh, a cleric and a very strange man in his own right, but he was intensely interested in witchcraft and werewolves and vampires. He went to Santorini to witness how some of those cases were handled uh, himself. And there was a, an interesting one. Um, and, and this didn't have so much to do with, with uh, blood drinking and that kind of havoc, but it concerned a money lender who um, acquired a, a lot of money and he gave away lots to charity. But he told his wife that uh, if he died before she did, that um, uh, if anyone came to her afterwards and said that, well, uh, he had cheated them in any way or they felt shortchanged, she was to make restitution. Well, he died, and that's what happened. Some uh, people came and said, um, well, we'd, we'd like to have restitution because we feel, you know, your husband owed us money. Well, she refused to give it to them. And within days, he was back as a vampire, uh, and he was absolutely furious. So he acted like a very, really more like an angry ghost, creating huge disturbances, lots of noise, um, and doing a lot of poltergeist things, like invading bedrooms and uh, messing around with the bed covers. He, he um, uh, turned the spouts on people's wine barrels, and they lost all their wine. He shouted at priests uh, and berated them. Um, he laughed at their prayers. You know, he did all, all sorts of things like that. And he shook beds. There was a story that he shook the bed of a pregnant woman so bad she miscarried. Well, he carried on like this. And she still refused to pay these people. Uh, and 
she was advised that his instructions ought to be fulfilled. But instead, she had his body dug up and exercised by priests because she hoped that would get rid of him, and it didn't. It just made things worse. So finally, when she paid the people the money, he was satisfied. And uh, she did have the cor- uh, corpse exercised, and, uh, and uh, they actually hacked it to bits and then reburied it. That was a very common remedy of the time. People believed that if the body was destroyed, it would no longer be a vehicle for the, the vampire uh, entity or spirit of the corpse to, to act out. So um, that was a case with a different twist. And then there was another case where uh, the vampire was a good guy. And he was a cobbler um, on Santorini, and and he came back and uh, helped out his family uh, after he died. Uh, Even though people considered him um, a vampire, and he would chop wood for the neighbors, and um, yeah, that does you know that sort of thing. But after a while, people got to be very nervous because nobody likes a vampire around, even if they're (laughs) helpful. So no. uh, they did have his, his corpse dug up, and uh, they burned it, and after that he never showed up again. It, it almost sounds as if uh, these legends are sort of blurring the lines between uh, vampires, or at least our understanding of what vampires are, and just run-of-the-mill ghosts or, or poltergeists, because these things, according to uh, Greek legend, uh, appear during the day, which certainly doesn't square with our understanding of vampires of, as being these, you know, the undead creatures of the night. Uh, and also, we don't hear a lot about uh, these, these these vampires uh, feasting on human blood so much. I mean, where are those accounts? A lot of those accounts, some of them do uh, come out of Greece, but a lot of those come out of Eastern Europe. And, and even so, they've been greatly magnified in our uh, popular culture and film and fiction to the point where we think vampires, that's all they did, was attack people to drink their blood. But the vampire, uh, even back in earlier times, was uh, very blurred with a lot of other uh, negative entities who would pester people, some of them believed to be people coming back after death, and even some of them blurring with demonic entities like the, uh, like the Greek vampire. And so we find these, these uh, crossovers with the poltergeist effects, even sexual attacks like an incubus or a succubus kind of demon, um, specters that they walked around in, in ghost-like forms. And um, they could create wasting away illnesses and and even cause people to die. And then they also might drink your blood. And we do have accounts uh, of people saying that they felt their blood had been been taken by the vampire. But the broadest way of looking at the vampire is is um, somebody who takes your life force through a variety of ways, and that's a wasting away of your your health and a disruption of your life. In certain parts of Eastern Europe, the vampires were known more for taking things like your money, your luck, your love, causing your animals to uh, to not, uh, like your cows not to give milk and uh, butter couldn't churn and things like that. They would disrupt your livelihood, and they would do that more than... Uh, the classic sort of, of blood drinking. So we're the ones who've kind of skewed that end of things. 
Well, to further muddy the waters, uh, after reading your, your encyclopedia, Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Monsters, um, the, the, the word, or the, the, the common Greek term for vampire, vrikolakas, is actually derived from a Bulgarian term, vrakolak, which means werewolf. So now I'm really confused, Rosemary. <laughs> what are we talking here? Are we talking vampires or werewolves? And here again, Richard, it's sometimes a very blurry line. And we find this in Eastern Europe, too, an overlap between vampire lore and werewolf lore, like the two are interconnected. And in fact, in some parts of Eastern Europe, there were very distinct beliefs that uh, if you were cursed as a werewolf, uh, and there were lots of beliefs about how you would become a werewolf and how you would act, uh, and here again, our, our popular culture is... It treats it very differently today, and then once you died, you would become a vampire. Uh, and Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, did a very artful uh, way of combining a lot of these beliefs into Dracula because he does have wolf-like characteristics. The Count is, um, he's pale, but he's, he's hairy in unusual ways. He's got uh, hands with fingernails like claws and the palms of his hands are hairy. It's, this is, uh, you know, the attribute of the werewolf in him. And he does shapeshift into a wolf form, and he commands wolves. He commands the wolf berserker. Uh, so there is this overlap, and we find that woven throughout uh, vampire lore um, in many places. So does one become the other or exhibit the characteristics? Well, the werewolf is known for a bloodlust of um, tearing people and animals apart and consuming their flesh and drinking their blood. And vampires have been described as going on these rampages as well. So uh, they seem to be maybe different shape-shifted forms of, of perhaps the same thing, uh, a, a predatory, marauding entity that comes either out of the grave or out of the demonic ethers uh, to um, trouble the, the living. The thing that the thing that impresses me about these uh, cases of vampires in Greece is the detail, uh, the the providence almost. You have specific individuals named. I mean, one could easily go into the records to find out whether there was a Father Francois Richard uh, living in Santorini. I think they actually named the village as well. Uh, and, yes. and of course, this was a case that he investigated and he names this moneylender. Uh, the last name, I, I believe, was Ionides. I mean, specific details that are mentioned. One could, you know, uh, if one wanted to investigate this further and find out, you know, whether these people actually existed. It, Generally, when we hear about vampire legends, we hear, we hear them in terms of sort of vague reference, but not the specifics that we're getting in, in, into here in, in, in these Greek cases. A lot of these specifics were uh, recorded by the Europeans who were fascinated by the vampire practices and cults and went to locations to uh, witness some of these cases and how the bodies were handled and, uh, and, and talk to people. Um, the, the vampire culture was more or less discovered by the West in the early 1700s. There were Austrian soldiers in military campaigns who were sent into remote parts of um, Eastern Europe, and some of them went into Turkey, Serbia, 
And uh, then there were Serbian soldiers also who served in Greece, and that's where they learned uh, more about vampires, too. And uh, when uh, Johann Flukinger, who was a military surgeon, uh, came, came across some of these beliefs and cases, he was absolutely flabbergasted. He could hardly believe it. It seemed so barbaric and primitive and superstitious to him. And he wrote up a report that wound up being published, and it just, uh, talk about going viral. Uh, back in the 1700s, that's exactly what happened to this report, and it just captured uh, the the Western literati and, and uh, uh, occultists by storm. Uh, so that's what prompted people like um, Turner Fort. Now, he was off on his botanical expeditions, but he was very curious about this and quite the documentarian. You know, he, he kept detailed diaries of everything. So did Montague Summers. Uh, Flukinger wrote up a, a number of cases. Um, uh, Dome Calme did. So we have European observers who um, really got a lot of the records down about these cases. Otherwise, I think a lot of them would have been lost. Let's take a time out when we come back. Let's talk about some of the causes of uh, or how one becomes a vampire. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, the author of Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Monsters. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show coming to you live from Kalamata in southern Greece. Stay with us. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator, author, and a regular contributor to The Conspiracy Show. She joins us the second Sunday of every month, and we're talking about vampires because Greece, as it turns out, uh, much to my shock and dismay, happens to be vampire central. And as someone who grew up on the Hammer films, and uh, and uh, even to this day, I mean, I am haunted by uh, vampire nightmares, uh, which actually I can, I, it goes back to a, a drive-in movie, 1967. My parents took me to see, or they went to see Divorce American Style. I was, you know, a mere three years old, but you know, babysitters were expensive, so they piled all five of us kids into the back of the station wagon, and we were supposed to fall asleep in the back. And uh, before the movie, the main feature started, there was a trailer for The Queen of Blood. Uh, and I can remember it even, you know, 45 years later, and uh, vampires haunt me to this day. So here I find myself in, uh, in the middle of, uh, uh, really, the origin of the vampire legend. So... Different ways, obviously, that one can become vampires, and, and uh, that varies from culture to culture. But here in, in Greece, what are some of the more common uh, ways that one could become, uh, you know, a reanimated corpse, if you will? Some of them come from old folklore, and some of them have uh, Christian elements that got mixed into them. For example, if you were a heretic... Um, if you were excommunicated, then you would become a vampire. But some of the more peculiar ones that, that come out of the folklore, if a certain animal jumps over your corpse before you're buried, this uh, was one reason why people were always uh, assigned to sit with a corpse um, prior to burial to make sure that nothing happened that would jeopardize uh, the journey of of the soul into the afterlife. Nobody wanted anybody hanging around. Now, in Greece, all kinds of animals uh, were believed to be vampire makers, donkeys for one, but cats were number one. 
And uh, so if a, and now almost every household had a cat, so you had to really watch the cat. Uh, and, and there was an old saying uh, related to this that um, if, if you want to say, well, like someone was going to get his comeuppance in the end for all of his bad acts, he would say the cats will eat him. And that was a, a reference to, well, after after death, he'll he'll just be a vampire. Oh, there are so many feral cats running around in Greece. Uh, I mean, this is this is well known. And dogs, wild do- uh, not wild dogs, but uh, homeless dogs, I guess, for lack of a better term, stray dogs. Lots of stray dogs and lots of stray cats. So, uh, so if if a stray cat were to jump over your grave, you might become a vampire. Um, here's an interesting one that I I uh, I just um, learned again from your book. Uh, being stillborn. Anything that was tragedy and unnatural um, could be considered a candidate for creating a vampire. Um, And birth defects, if you had certain birth defects, um, protuberances from the spine, you were said to have a tail. Um, if you were in, and one major belief in Greece was if you were born with a call, and that's the um, the amniotic fluid that encases the fetus. And sometimes when people are born, a, a piece of it clings to the head. If a child was born with a call, well, they they kind of were had a double-edged sword. They would be considered to be very psychically gifted. And on one hand, they could battle the forces of darkness, but on the other hand, their gifts included things like um, the evil eye and knowledge of sorcery, and um, they could be, um, they would probably become vampires after, uh, after death. And uh, there was one practice where the ashes of the call were, uh, the call was burned, and the ashes were saved in a little vial, and it, uh, a child turned age seven, uh, the ashes would be mixed in water, and the child would drink it. And this was supposed to be a remedy, a prevention against becoming a vampire. So uh, you could be stillborn, or you could have some strange birth, and that would mark you. Uh, if you died in bad ways, um, I mentioned the murder, the suicide, drowning. People all over the world seem to fear drowning as one of the worst ways to go. And drowning deaths have all kinds of um, bad folklore associated with them of what happens to the people who drown. All right. Uh, Sorry, let me just jump in. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley discussing vampires here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley with us as she joins us the second Sunday of every month. And, of course, we're talking vampires coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata just steps from the ocean and in the shadow of the Tahitos Mountains. So you get the best of both worlds here. You get the sun, the surf, and the mountains, uh, both just moments away. And uh, delighted to have Rosemary with us as we're talking vampires. Uh, we were talking about some of the, the causes of vampires. Now, I would imagine that uh, where you have a problem vampires you'd have to have a solution i'm guessing that in just about every village or as they call them here horios you'd have to have someone well versed in the uh, uh in the destruction of vampires a vampire killer or a vampire hunter if you will uh can you tell me about some of these uh, individuals that, i mean was it was this basically relegated to the the clergy or did people take it upon themselves to dispatch vampires 
the, the clergy were really very uneasy about vampires and uh, dealt with them uh, within the, the rituals of the Christian church mainly as a way of, of trying to stamp out what they considered to be the superstitious practices of, of the pagans. Um, you could be a professional vampire hunter. This was uh, literally a profession in many villages where these things uh, wreaked a lot of havoc. And uh, they seemed to be individuals who possessed psychic ability, uh, clairvoyance, but they often made a great show of coming into a village and dispatching the vampire. And they would have, like, their tools of the trade, uh, their tricks. Uh, they would ring bells. Uh, they would take their jacket off and look down the sleeve like a telescope as a way of bringing the vampire into focus. And it was their job to uh, to identify the vampire corpse. And uh, so the, the more show they put into it, uh, to look like they were really doing something, the better it was for them, the more they would get paid. And oftentimes their payment was a chicken or a horse or, you know, whatever the village could afford. It wasn't usually money. And they literally rode around like vampire gunslingers, so to speak, going from town to town, dispatching these things, especially during uh, times of ep epidemic. That was another big cause of vampires. If you died in an epidemic, you would be uh, likely to come back as a vampire. So the church, uh, when the church tried to Christianize a lot of these areas, they had to deal with this. And just telling the the, uh, the locals not to do it anymore didn't cut any mustard. So uh, the, the priests would have to step in and say, look, if um, this is the way that you deal with the unwanted spirits and, and with evil. And uh, so they would perform uh, rites of exorcism. They would throw holy water on uh, graves and corpses, and when they had to, they would oversee ex, uh, exhumation of a body. But oftentimes, the villagers had their way anyway and hacked the body to pieces and burned it up and threw it in the water. That was the best way to, to get rid of a vampire. The priests would not do that themselves. And sometimes they, they literally had to, to just sort of look the other way. Um, and just let the, the locals deal with things in, in their own way. I find it uh, somewhat odd that the Greek Orthodox Church, for example, I mean, which certainly acknowledges, you know, the existence of demons, and if we're talking about a reanimated corpse that has been possessed by a demon, uh, one would think that the uh, the church would sort of embrace that. I mean, not not as being a a, a a legend or a superstition, but as being a a manifestation of the gospel truth. Well, they seem to have had a rather schizophrenic uh, view on on these sorts of things, and I. I I have the impression from reading the literature that many times they just wanted the whole thing to go away uh, and, and not have to deal with, with vampires anymore. And you have to remember that a lot of these uh, places were remote. Um, priests were small in number, and they, they might have on their hands dealing with a mob of hysterical people and who were insisting that things had to be done a certain way. Uh, so they probably had to call the shots as they saw them uh, in, in any given time. 
But, um, yeah, the church's official attitude toward all of this was that uh, these were pagan superstitions, and they, it was their job to turn people to the right and true way to, uh, to deal with um, the unwanted, unseen, and uh, the evil. Now, here's something about uh, uh, vampires that I think is v- very specific to, to Greece or maybe Eastern Europe, Southern or Eastern Europe. And I didn't know this again until I read your book. And that is the Vrikolakas, as they call them uh, here in Greece, can leave its grave any day but Saturday. Why is that? There was a very widespread belief that uh, vampires had to be confined to their grave on uh, the day before the Sabbath, and that this was the time, the best time to go out and hunt them down, because they would the, they would always be in their graves, and they could be the bodies could be dug up and staked and uh, hacked up and burned, and um, the vampire would be at home, so to speak. Uh, this belief is also found in in Eastern Europe as well. Uh, and so that was the big day for vampire hunting, Saturday. Here's something else. Uh, again, we, we alluded to this earlier. I was asking, you know, we, we don't hear in a lot of these accounts that we've been talking about uh, of vampires, you know, attacking people and drinking their blood. Uh, in fact, the Vrikolakas is not generally known for drinking blood, but for killing people through unprovoked attack, disease, and illness, as you mentioned. It preys upon humans and animals and tears out their livers. They like the liver, apparently, Rosemary. I guess they need some iron. (laughs) (laughs) They're not taking the blood, so they're getting it from the liver. Um, There are these different pockets of beliefs, and we find them around Eastern Europe, too. Uh, Europe was by no means uniform in its belief about uh, how vampires preyed upon people. And the, the tearing out of the liver, I've only encountered that uh, related to the Greek vampire. Uh, the Eastern European ones seem to be either more bloodthirsty or um, just more of a, a general poltergeist, um, suck-off-your-life force sort of uh, entity. Now, this part, um, you know, thankfully it's not dinner time because uh, I, I sort of hesitate to mention this, but it also uh, appears that the uh, the vampires here in Greece, anyway, will appear in a house, eat all the food, or ruin the food by defecating and urinating all over it. I mean, this obviously did not make it into the Hollywood depictions. You know, if Hollywood had to portray the vampire of folklore, nobody would have ever gone to see any of these movies. They're, they're just totally disgusting uh, characters. And uh, the, the urinating and defecating, that's also quite common. And in fact, um, there was another vampire case from, from Greece, uh, from the uh, Tithnos uh, Island. And this, this was a guy who um, died, and they put a cross in his mouth uh, in an effort to prevent him coming back as a vampire. This was a Christian remedy, but he came back anyway. And the description was that he, he marched up and down the streets and um, went into their homes and feasted on the food and wine. And he went up on the roof where he would urinate on the people below. I mean, it's almost comical, some of these descriptions, but uh, these, these sorts of things would absolutely terrify people. Well, the, you see, this fits into my 
sort of understanding of vampires as these vile, filthy, uh, uh, demonically possessed corpses. Uh, you know, not the romanticized uh, vampire diaries and my babysitter's a vampire and, and the twilight where people are dating vampires. As you say, if they only knew, this is the real vampire, defecating on people's food, urinating on people's food, tearing out people's livers. Uh, yeah, they're really foul, foul creatures. Now, I guess last point of order, and perhaps most important, my own personal security and that of my little guys, uh, how can I, uh, again, being, uh, uh, you know, residing here at the foot of the Tahito Mountains, which are, you know, they're kind of ominous looking, especially at, you know, twilight. How can I keep a vampire from my door, Rosemary? Well, of course, you can uh, use a cross or a crucifix, but that's a Christian remedy, and the vampire beliefs preceded Christianity quite a bit. People used uh, garlic, um, the color blue, and this was used against the evil eye. Uh, You know, in the Middle East, we see those uh, evil eye amulets, um, and it's a very uh, deep uh, kind of cobalt blue. Uh, This color was believed to repel vampires. So uh, that kind of amulet could be hung on your door. Another remedy uh, would be to scatter seeds around your bed. I mean, forget the the uh, holy water and salt, because the pagans said something else would work better. You put a lot of millet seeds or poppy seeds around your bed, and the belief was that the vampire would have to stop and eat all of those one by one before it could come and attack you in your bed. Uh, This is one of the remedies that, uh, here again, it seems very comical, but when somebody was buried uh, who was feared uh, for coming back, they would fill the coffins with small seeds uh, as food for the vampire to keep it happy so it would stay in the ground. Uh, So you could certainly try uh, any of those. Garlic, that's probably the best, uh, most universal remedy. Just hang some garlic right on the door. Well, thus endeth the lesson, Rosemary. Uh, you've you've told us more than we ever knew or imagined about vampires, and really, I think you know this is these are the straight goods. Never mind the Hollywood depictions. This is your true uh, vampire, and unfortunately, residing right here in uh, in Greece. So, uh, thank you, and I feel uh, I feel sort of forewarned and forearmed now. Good luck, Richard. All right, Rosemary. We'll talk to you next month. There you go, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And as we say, uh, good night and uh, good morning from the Elite Hotel here in uh, Kalamata, Greece. I just wanted to leave you with this parting uh, article. Conspiracy theories are becoming conventional wisdom. A recent psychological and sociological study in the U.S. and the United Kingdom indicates that the so-called conspiracy theories about contested events such as 9-11, are turning, are turning into the conventional wisdom, according to an analyst, an analyst. According to a psychological study of online discussions of news articles comparing pro- and anti-conspiracy comments, those who disbelieve government accounts of such events as the 9-11 uh, attacks and the JFK assassination outnumber believers by more than two to one, according to Kevin Barrett in an article published by Press TV. That means it is the pro-conspiracy commentators who are expressing what is now the conventional wisdom, while the anti-conspiracy commenters 
are becoming a small, beleaguered minority, he said. He went on to say that studies show that those who accept the official versions of contested events often displayed anger and hostility, possibly due to the fact that their conventional views no longer represent the majority. He noted that those who favored stereotypical uh, versions of news events turned out to be fanatically attached to their own conspiracy theories as indisputably true. For people who think 9-11 was a government conspiracy, he says, the focus is not on promoting a specific rival theory, but in trying to debunk the official account. He also added that it was the CIA that invented and popularized the term conspiracy theorists as part of a propaganda campaign to smear and defame people questioning the JFK assassination. In other words, people who use the terms conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist as an insult are doing so as the result of a well-documented, undisputed, historically real conspiracy by the CIA to cover up the JFK assassination. That campaign, by the way, was completely illegal. He said that the anti-conspiracy people seek out information that confirms their pre-existing beliefs while using irrational mechanisms to avoid conflicting information. He concluded that the CIA's old campaign to stifle debate using the conspiracy theory smear is nearly worn out, adding pro-conspiracy voices are now more numerous and more rational than anti-conspiracy ones. There you go. Conspiracy theories are becoming conventional wisdom. Whoever thought my program would become mainstream? (laughs) In any event... Uh, my thanks to uh, Tim Spreen for uh, technical production. Uh, next week, media scientist Nelson Thaw will be on the program to talk about the lunar landing hoax as we approach the 44th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing. And Dr. Cass Ingram, I believe, is going to be uh, here to talk about oregano, talk about Greece. I mean, uh, Greece is known for its uh, wild oregano. And uh, Dr. Cass Ingram will be here to talk about how foods like oregano and other things found in the Mediterranean diet can help heal. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.